speaking of the Trinity, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, when you believe in things that you don't understand, then you suffer. Superstition ain't the way. That sound familiar? <laughs> this was Stevie Wonder who built that out back in his heyday. And if he was right about believing things that you don't understand, then I suppose all of us here this morning will be considered superstitious. Did you agree? Believing in things you don't understand? That's Trinity Sunday, right? Now, you, like me, probably don't normally think of yourself as suffering from superstition. Nevertheless, today we gather together to, among other important things, confess the Holy Trinity, the Trinity in unity and the unity in Trinity, as the Athanasian Creed puts it. So I'll make another confession right off the bat here. I don't understand it at all. That is the Trinity. But yes, I do believe it, nevertheless. I cannot grasp how our one true God could be one being but three persons. Three persons who are the Godhead, they are the one divine being. <laughs> how can this be? My math skills are a little fuzzy these days, but this just makes me, my brain go pop and explode. So admittedly, if not being able to comprehend the Holy Trinity therefore makes me superstitious, I'm guilty as charged. I not only believe, but I also teach and confess the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And I believe, teach, and confess right along with about two billion others on the planet. Two billion Christians can't be wrong, can they? Maybe Stevie would disagree, but to be more accurate concerning Mr. Wonder, the superstitions he had in mind in his song were more along the conventional lines of crossing a black cat underneath a ladder while holding a mirror that was broken in 13 pieces. That sort of thing. He was not talking about contemplating the mystery of our maker. Or at least you'd have to squint pretty hard to read that between the lines. But be all that as it may, there are a lot of things that I don't understand or probably never will, like quantum physics. But nevertheless, I still benefit from them. I also don't understand, as it says in our psalm today, how God can lay out the heavens and by his hands set in place the moon and the stars. How do all those heavenly bodies just hang there wireless like an ornament on nothing right there in the middle of space? Astrophysicists, they can talk a lot longer than I can on this subject, but in the end, even they're not too sure how this whole expanding universe still manages somehow to hold together. They too scratch their heads while proving the inadequacies of their own latest scientific theories. While we're still on Psalm 8, let me pick up where we left off. David, the psalmist there, was just extolling the majesty and glory of the Lord, as we just sang. That is, uh, David takes in the immensity and the intricacies of all the starry heavens. And back then, you really could see up in the sky and appreciate the night a lot better than we today with all the smog and uh, neon glare that clouds our view today. 
Psalm 8 then abruptly downshifts from the heights of the starry heavens to the contrasting puniness of man. When I consider your heavens, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you should care for him? And that's a good question. What is man and why indeed does God still bother to deal with man? That's sort of what David is asking there. Also right there has got to be a mystery itself equal to, if not greater than, the mystery of our three-in-one nature of our God. That is, why would a pure and holy God so love and care for a stiff-necked people on a wayward planet who so long ago told their creator he could get off because, thank you very much, Lord, we're taking the reins now. And we think, quite frankly, we could do a lot better than you at steering this ship. So I certainly have a hard time trying to understand that kind of amazing love God still has for sinners on this planet. And with St. Paul, I also don't understand why I continue to sin. And I do the thing that I don't want to do, and the thing that I ought to do, I don't do. Paul says he doesn't understand that, and I'm right there with him. And if man hasn't quite yet learned to understand himself, well, then what makes him think he's ever going to understand his maker in whose image he was created? Why does the human race keep on making the same mistakes century after century? Just how has taking the reins worked out so far for our planet? How are we doing on the war front, for example? How about disease, poverty, crime, social stability? How about peace on earth? Yay, let's hear it for humanism, raw. Man is the measure of all things, humanism says. God is dead, at least to most humans he is. He's passe, irrelevant, or he's just one God among many gods that our minds, our fallen, darkened minds, those idol factories have created in our own image. There is none who seeks God, writes St. Paul to the Romans, as he reflects on sinful humanity. But Paul is quoting there from another psalm, namely Psalm 14. From there we see the context. Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Psalm 14. The Lord looked down from heaven and what? Did he decide to scrap this whole corrupt universe and build a new one? Not so fast. It's coming. Mankind would be in no position to argue with God, our creator, if he were indeed to decide to make a sequel to Noah's Ark, right? But on a grander cosmic scale. God could justifiably take down all the party lights in the sky and roll up everything and toss it into a black hole somewhere in the universe. But that's not what he has done, is it? The Lord looked down from heaven and decided to come join us. God with us. God for us. God not abandoning us. 
the doctrine of the Holy Trinity as articulated so clearly and precisely for us in the Athanasian Creed, which we will recite shortly. It teaches us that God didn't whip up out of nothing a whipping boy to take all mankind's punishment for our treasonous and murderous ways. No. The real story is much more amazing than that. God the Father from all eternity had a single son, co-eternal, co-equal with him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all coexisted together in perfect harmony, in perfect fellowship from all eternity. They never needed to create man or anything else for that matter. God was and is and evermore shall be the all-sufficient one. He wasn't lonely with only the only cure being more persons. Rather, God extended an invitation to his newly minted creation and human beings in particular made in his likeness. He extended an invitation into his own sweet forever fellowship that he was enjoying. But when man in his rebellion lost the keys to paradise and incurred the death penalty, God the Father, out of love, dispatched his one and only son into the world, not to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved, John 3.17 explains. The Lord looked down from heaven and then actually came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, as we say in the Nicene Creed. Born to die. As the Lamb of God, the Son came down specifically to take the death penalty that we deserve, you and I. We deserved heaven's wrath, not he. And we were so busy suppressing the truth, the truth of our own impending judgment, suppressing it in our own unrighteousness, that we looked God in the face when he got here and we called him a devil. Beware, the Bible says, when men call good evil and evil good. But that's exactly what we see happening now as we drop in on the conversation already in progress in John chapter 8, our gospel lesson for today. What a moment to enter that conversation. The Jews answered Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Didn't we get that one right? Wow, talking to the Son of God. That was their way of calling Jesus a possessed half-breed. Little did they know that the one God to whom they claimed they belonged was standing right before them in the flesh. This becomes even more clear when you fast forward a little bit in our passage. Verse 58, uh, in there things reach a dramatic crescendo when Jesus declares to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That is a drop-the-mic moment, if there ever was one. All the religious leaders who heard this immediately understood that Jesus was identifying himself with none other than Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. When God commissioned Moses to go to Pharaoh, you might remember in Exodus 3, to set his people free, Moses had asked, who shall I say is sending me? And God replied to Moses, tell them, I am has sent you. 
These Jewish leaders were the strictest monotheistic adherents. They religiously recited the Hebrew Shema, Israel's heart cry from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So Jesus' claim was blasphemous to the Jews' ears. Blasphemous, unless it was true. And Jesus had already prefaced his claim to be Yahweh, the great I Am, with his truly, truly, I say to you, preface. The Jewish leaders at that precise heated moment then had no choices left except to either one, immediately drop to their knees and worship Jesus and call him my Lord and my God as Thomas did when he encountered the resurrected Jesus. Or two, these Jewish religious leaders could pick up stones to kill this wicked blasphemer standing right there before them. Well, verse 49 records that they chose the latter. But nevertheless, Jesus slips away into the crowd. It was not yet his time to be lifted up on the cross and glorified as our Savior. Upon reflecting back on this famous clash between Jesus and the Jewish leaders here in John 8, the famous 20th century Christian apologist C.S. Lewis made this following insightful comment which bears on Christ's identity. Says Lewis, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I can't accept his claim to be God. Says Lewis, that is the one thing we must never say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher at all. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell or something worse. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You can find that in C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity. Now, when you see it put that way, there's no easy escape from Jesus' claims of deity, is there? It's basically he's Lord, liar, or lunatic. And this is sometimes called the trilemma, as opposed to a dilemma. A dilemma is what you have on your hands if your neighbor starts to claim that he's God Almighty. And do you ignore or report him? That's your dilemma. Good, decent, and sane folks just don't make claims about being Almighty God, like Jesus did. Or if they do, they can't back it up by rising from the dead or raising someone else like dead Lazarus from the tomb, but Jesus did. So there is, or rather, would you say there is, a tension then when it, it's when we have to come to grips with the person of Christ? Is there an urgency? You bet there is. Try as we might, we cannot cheat death. The death rate is still one per person. Jesus is the only one who has overcome death. 
But still, nevertheless, false views of Jesus persist like those that made the creeds necessary in the first place. And these false views confront every generation. Heresies abound and distresses the church. The devil would seek to diminish ever so slightly Christ's rightfully exalted place and his all-sufficient work for you. Turning the cross into a question mark into your hearts. The creeds are there to keep bringing us back to Christ's words. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death from John 8. Only the real Jesus can say that and expect anyone to seriously take it to heart. We can take it to our hearts because he took us to his heart when he died for us on that cross, when he died for the sins of the whole world and rose victorious over death and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, exalted and reigning over his church today for whom he shed his innocent blood. God's word reminds us, though, it wasn't just the love of Jesus that was in operation to save us. The Father sacrificed his one and only Son to do it. And the Spirit delivers the faith to believe it all. And the Spirit produces the fruit of that saving faith in our lives, which begins with love. Love. As we contemplate the Trinity today on Trinity Sunday, let's remember that God's heroic rescue operation of us sinners, we are actually invited into that fellowship of love that the Godhead experiences and has experienced. That's his invitation to you and to me from 1 John. That which we have seen and what we have heard, we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. May that fellowship forever be yours. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.